Good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, C4 Church. Good morning. Really glad you're here this morning. I want to say hello to many of you again watching, listening online in Ontario and Canada, around the world. We're glad you're joining our family. Yes, today is St. Patrick's Day, as Angela has said, and yet I want to reassure you, forget the green beer. St. Patrick was the Billy Graham of his day. Read his story. It's an unbelievable story of a guy we're all going to hang out with in heaven. And trust me, just read his story today. Uh, though it's St. Patrick's Day, I'd like to take you to a different celebration the celebration called Valentine's. It is the celebration in our culture where we supposedly uh, talk about love. I use the word supposedly on purpose. I was uh, Googling this week and discovered on Huffington Post uh, something that was put out a little while ago called the worst Valentine gifts ever. Uh, gentlemen, pay attention. This is serious. Remember, the goal on Valentine's Day, if you're in a dating relationship or married, is to continue to love and woo the person in front of you. So, uh, number one, Jennifer writes, I got a, more, a marble rolling pin, a lazy Susan from my boyfriend. Wow. All right. Here's one of the best ones I read this week. Tammy wrote, I got potpourri and bubble bath, and my husband knew I was allergic to both. And if that's not bad enough, he also gave her a man's extra-large windbreaker. These are true, by the way. These are not invented. Leanne wrote, I got three oven mitts, not four, three, okay, and an out-of-date calendar from my husband. Lori writes, I got an electric shaver from my boyfriend. Really? Really? Okay, Tiffany got an extension cord. Nothing says love like an extension cord. Nothing. Um, one woman wrote uh, that she got granny panties that were three sizes too big. Awesome. Julie got, oh, this is ex excellent, a, a laundry basket. Wow. Uh, wow. Don got a tablecloth with food stains on it. That's great. Uh, Kate got vitamins. Remember, these are Valentine's gifts. Vitamins. Um, okay, one of them, <laughs> I, I, I was just, um, yeah, I won't read that when we're in church. Um, Wow. Yeah, i got to be careful here. Uh, one mate got handmade placemats with landscapes uh, with all, all over it, from, and, and she said that was terrible. Uh, a person said, I got nail clippers for Valentine's Day. One, Lisa got a, a, a wrapped box of Kleenex with a card that read, bless you. Oh, <laughs> loser boyfriend. Loser toy. Now, here's the best one. Elizabeth writes... For Valentine's Day, I got a coffee table. I wanted an engagement ring, and he knew it. Mm. The following year, I still wanted an engagement ring, and I got a set of golf clubs. I've never golfed in my life. The year after that, I bought my own ring and told Mark about it after the fact. See, when you read things like that, and they're not jokes, number one, gentlemen, we have much work to do in our culture. But deeper than that, these men misunderstood what love was about. Almost all those gifts, if you notice, have nothing to do with engaging the woman of your dreams. Deeply practical. Now, if you like practical things, that's fine, but they're missing it. They've misdefined what that was supposed to be. On a much more serious note, love in our culture is really misdefined. If, if that's how we give gifts on the day of love, 
It's a reflection, actually, of where our culture has gone with love. Think about it for a moment this morning. I don't care your age, your stage, what part of the generation you make up. Love remains the most needed reality for you right now. Just stop for a moment. Everyone look up. Right now. The thing that you need most right now in your life is not money, it's not power, it's love. You need it, and I need it, desperately, all the time. Your family needs love. Your school that you go to, high school, junior high, university, it needs love. Your workplace, do you think it needs love? Oh, you bet you it does. Our city, this region called Durham needs love. Our world, our world needs love. But the problem is it is so badly defined that no one really knows what love is anymore. We see aspects, but not the full picture. In our culture, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and books, music, advertising, visual arts, love has come to mean everything except what love really is. We've forgotten what God the one who is love, the inventor of love, because it stems from his DNA, has said it is. So many people think love is a feeling, something you fall into or out of. Love is just reduced to an emotion. The word, the idea of love has lost power, has no more weight. We equate love with lust or sex or porn or one night stands. Our culture says that when we have sexual partners we're not supposed to have, we call them what? Lovers. We call all sorts of things lovemaking in our culture, and it's not about love at all. One wrote, if you really want to know what love is, love first and foremost is an action. It is an unconditional commitment. It is a promise never to be broken. Look at that definition. Now, if that is what love is, then like I preached a few months ago at our 905 campus with our youth and young adults, If that's the essence of love, then the generation that we are living in is living in a love desert, a world barren of real love. See, we as Christians believe that biblical love, true love, consuming love, what we call agape, God-given love, starts first and foremost never with us, but actually starts with God himself. You cannot become loving in the biblical sense. You cannot become deeply changed. You cannot become a new creation, radically new, radically loving, if you have not first experienced a love that actually comes from another place called heaven. Love is never from us first. Only after you've understood and accepted and experienced God the Father's adoption of us, only when Jesus has become Savior and leader and Lord of your life, as the Holy Spirit begins to fill you and seals you, and you continue to walk in that triune love, can then you become a biblical, loving revolution to others. See, you cannot separate our conversation in John today from the theme of our year, believe. You cannot separate believing from biblical love. They are two sides of one coin, why? For Christians, love and belief are about encountering, everyone ready, a person, and his name is Jesus. If you encounter him, you believe. If you encounter him, you can become love. Now with such a desperate need for love, we come interesting to Jesus' last great teaching before love ceases all around him and he is murdered. What does Jesus teach just before his murder? Love. 
Here, once again, Jesus comes and he, and he reminds, he encourages, he calls his people to know what he has already done over them and in them so they can become like him to each other and then like him to a world that he later says, if you read all of John 15, they are going to hate you like they hate me. Jesus chooses to flesh out, to expand their limited human view of love. The Father's love, Jesus' love, the Spirit's love, God's triune love for them. Their need, he's going to say, to love each other. And their coming need to love the whole human family, no matter how the human family treats you back. Jesus, knowing the power and the need for this conversation, chooses to start this dialogue with an image. Listen closely, it's a familiar image. I mean, he's done this time and time again, right? The shepherd, the door, the bread, the water, the light. Jesus continually uses images in his culture to bring the divine down to everyday life and dirt. And so he does it again. He uses one of the most sacred images to talk about love, the vine in the vineyard. Now, for most of us living in the suburbs of Toronto, we know nothing about this. The only thing we know about vines is wine if you drink it, or if you go to Niagara-on-the-Lake, do a tour, and leave. Most of us sitting here have absolutely no concept of the vineyard culture and life, and yet you and I will begin to understand the power of what Jesus is about to declare. Things become clear and, and convicting, all-consuming, when you know the background of what Jesus says in John 15. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn there this morning, physically or virtually. It says... In the Old Testament, which of course, if you want to understand Jesus, you must know the Old Testament well. It says in Psalm 80, verse 8, these words about Israel. God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and you filled the land. Here's where we need to begin our conversation this morning. Israel, the actual people of Israel were considered the vine and God was called the gardener. And so all the people, the Hebrews, the Israelites in their day and in Jesus' day believed because of their ethnicity, they were Jewish, and their faith, Judaism, they were automatically the people of God. Everyone ready? Listen closely. And they were the vine. Jesus comes along in John 15:1 and says such offensive, radical words that we miss if you've grown up in church. Everyone ready? Jesus shows up, and he begins to teach in love, and he starts it this way. I am the what? Say it loud. What? True vine. Excuse me? I am the true vine. Oh, and my father, he's the gardener. Jesus is saying, not Israel anymore, me. I am the true vine, and God is the true planter, and I am replacing Israel, and here's why. Because in my birth, and in my life, and in my perfect death, and coming resurrection, and my ascension, I will do what you were called to do, and you never did. See, Jesus never compromised. His allegiance was clear. His understanding of truth, perfect. His filling of the Holy Spirit, continuous. See, the Jewish nation was called to be a light to all non-Jews, to show them what God was light, and they only did it in shadow. But Jesus, who is, oh, notice, the light of the world has now come, and he is the true vine, and he is going to do what his people failed to do. What's the implication? The implication is that every person hearing Jesus' teaching, especially at this time in a Jewish audience, has to ask themselves a very difficult question. 
So you're telling me, Jesus, I'm no longer automatically included. Correct. And not only that, you're telling me that my relationship with you determines if I'm God's child because either I'm attached to the vine or I'm not. And Jesus says, oh, you bet you. See, at this moment, Jesus has literally radically changed the trajectory of holy history and reduced the whole conversation from millions of people in 5,000 years of holy history down to himself. And he says, just so you know, I'm the true vine. And then Jesus continues and says, God cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it will become more fruitful. Now, if you've grown up in church, you're already asking a question. Where's John going to go with this one? Does this mean I can lose my salvation? Everyone's getting their Twitter accounts ready to see where I go. Well, let me tell you, the answer is no. We misread this so badly because A, we're not living there, and B, we don't live in a vine culture mentality. First of all, just so you know, you see that phrase, cut off? In all Greek literature and everywhere in the Bible, it is never translated anywhere else, cut off. It actually is translated everywhere else, taken up. Say it loud, taken up. This is so important. See, this is not what is meant. Lift up suggests the image of a vine dresser leaning over to pick up a little branch. Why? Well, as I said in 2011, preaching on this passage, Things became clear when I was reading a pastor and his experience in California. Famous pastor, true story, was preaching. And a guy came up and he says, do you understand John 15? And he honestly said, well, sort of. Good on him. And the guy says, I actually own a massive vineyard in North California. He said, I think I figured out what Jesus was trying to communicate. The guy said, awesome. Took him to a restaurant, bought him a coffee and said, let's talk. This man began to talk about everyday life in a vineyard, how he spent with his staff long hours walking through vineyards, tending the grapes, watching the fruit, waiting for that perfect harvest. And then he said these words, everyone lean in. He said, new branches, brand new branches have a tendency to trail down onto the ground and they don't bear fruit on the ground at all. When branches grow along the ground, the leaves get covered in dust, and then when it rains, they get coated in mud, and then if the mud isn't dealt with, then they mildew. So the branches become sick and useless. So the pastor rightly said, of course, as he would, so what do you do, cut them off? And the guy said, no, never would we cut them off. He was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, send the coffee. <laughs> and the vine dresser said, don't you understand? I love this. Those branches are much too valuable for that. He says, we actually walk through our hundreds of acres and we pick up each little branch and we have little water things and we, we wipe them off and then we reattach them to trellises and within weeks, they're producing fruit. See, for the Christian, <laughs> we fall down and we get covered and we get covered with our sin, but it's not just sin we get covered with, we also get covered in pain and we get covered in history and our history has so much power sometimes we're covered. And here's what's so beautiful, Jesus comes and he says, you are too valuable to cut off. I lift you up and wash you off so you can bear fruit. And so he takes new little leaves and he brings them up. See, that's why verse three now makes sense. You're already, notice the word, cleaned. 
Because of the word I've spoken to you, you're already with me. I've already embraced you and you've embraced me. My teaching, we have allegiance and lordship taking place. There's an understanding through me and my word. So remain in me, verse 4, and I, I will remain in you. Abide, walk with me. Notice scripturally like I've been teaching for years here, truth and knowledge, belief are experiential and cognitive. Discipleship, one wrote, is not just a matter of acknowledging who Jesus is. It is actually spiritually connecting to the living person named Jesus. Christian belief is reliance upon and a relationship with Jesus. It's not just intellectual consent about Jesus. This is a powerful, mystical union we all have if we know him. Jesus, I love this, remains in us and we remain in him. Now the question we should be asking this morning is this, because things are going to get really serious in a few minutes with Jesus' teaching. How do I remain in Jesus? And the answer we already discovered last week, everyone ready? We do it by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the lifeblood between us and Jesus. He's the glue that keeps us together. He is the, listen, he is the crazy glue of the Trinity. You can't break the Holy Spirit once he's in you. You're stuck with Jesus forever. That's why Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. That's why Paul in Romans 8 would say, if anyone does not have the spirit of, notice, Christ, they don't belong or abide to Christ. In other words, because the Holy Spirit's in your life, if you're a Christian, you can abide with Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit, you don't belong. You're not saved. You're still condemned. You're not adopted. You're not guaranteed eternal life. You're not guaranteed resurrection. You're not a child of God. See, you can't call God Father, let alone Dad, without Him. Only through the Holy Spirit is Jesus revealed. And only through Jesus can you see the Father. Everyone ready? No Spirit, no Jesus. No Jesus, no Father. No Father, no relationship. No relationship, no life. Let me say that again. No spirit, no abiding with Jesus. No Jesus, no God the Father, no God the Father, no relationship, no adoption, no eternity, no life. But the Holy Spirit is present when you invite Christ in. And, and he not only seals us and baptizes us, but continues to fill us. We get feel, filled with the ethos of Jesus. That's why he says, continuing in verse 4, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It needs to remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Just let's stop there and look at that. This is a good reminder. This is a good humbling moment. Jesus is the vine, everyone. There is not a vine found in this place. We're all just branches. If a man or woman remains in me, and I'm in him or her, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing this is why we've been preaching in this church against self-sufficiency on one side and fatalism on the other side. Fatalism, again, that declaration, we can change nothing. It's just too big, too powerful. It's unchangeable. So many of you have lived with that worldview about your friends, your family, about conversion issues, about society. Nothing can be done, and the opposite sin is just as bad. We can do everything. Don't you know who I am, how educated I am, how strong I am? Look at our church. Look at our style. Listen. You can do nothing apart from me. See, Jesus comes and he reminds us as a community, it is about power, it is about power that is not from us. 
Our relationship with Jesus declares we actually are the limbs, the body of Christ, but he never expected us to live a Christian life based on our own duty or ability. That's why we abide with Christ through the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit gets closer and closer to us, we would naturally reject this idea over here that we can do it all. And of course, we're filled with so much hope, we'd never buy into this either. Jesus says, if anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. You see, ah, you're wrong, John. See? You see, you can lose your salvation. Right there. Stop. Listen. Jesus is using metaphors on purpose. Who's the first audience? This is a group of Jewish people suddenly realizing that they no longer are the epicenter, but Jesus is. Jesus has said all through the book of John, do you believe on me? He said, I am water, eternal water. Do you want it? I'm the bread of life. Do you never want to go hungry again? He is saying here, I am the vine. I, my sap literally will give you eternal life. This is not a conversation about the individual branches after they've met the dresser and the vine itself. This is a conversation at this moment saying, do you even want the vine? Do you want to abide? Do you want salvation? This is the same conversation with the woman at the well. This is not for you to become paralyzed, sitting going, oh, I'm not sure if I'm producing enough work, so I must not be a Christian, so I need to run to the altar on Friday night. No, God chose you. You didn't chose him. Breathe. This is a declaration to a Jewish community. Do you want the vine in the first place? Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Abide in me. There's great power. If you don't want me, well, the implication is you will be burned and you'll be thrown away because if you don't want Jesus in this life, you won't want him in the next. So then the question moves on. The conversation gets deeper. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you can ask anything you wish and it will be given to you. If you know God's word, he says, my teaching, what is promised, then you can pray with authority now. Now, we, we talked about this last week, though. You, you need to line up your, your, your will and your prayer life with God. So your prayers need to reflect the character of God. They need to be about the glory of God. They need to be based on the promises of God and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you know who God is and what do you know what he has and has not promised? How do you evaluate a prompting? Oh, it's called the Bible. If you know my words, you can ask with authority. This is to my Father's glory, Jesus says, that you will bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Remain in my love. If, if you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. Now, here's where things get interesting. For Jesus, love is connected to obedience. For Jesus, love is connected to obedience. Oh, I love you, Lord. And how is that demonstrated in your week? See, this is when the Christian idea of love and belief hits home. This is where the rubber begins to meet the road. 
Jesus says, if you love me, you'll, you'll obey me. See, we're people of truth. We're called to mold our lives after the will of God. It was J.I. Packer who wrote these amazing words when he said, Christianity is the true worship and the service of the only true God, humanity's creator and redeemer. It is a religion, I love this, that rests on revelation. Nobody on earth would ever know the truth about God or able to be related to him or know him in a personal way if God first had not acted to make himself known. God has acted, though. And the 66 books of the Bible, 39 before Jesus, 27 after, are the record, interpretation, expression, and embodiment of his self-disclosure. Here's the Twitter moment, everyone. God and godliness are the Bible's united themes. God and holy living, love, obedience are the Bible's uniting themes. That's why it says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet. Or in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, training, and righteousness. Back to the Psalms where it says, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. See, here's what we need to catch this morning. Jesus begins the conversation by saying, I love you, and I really love you. And as you continue to walk in my love, and you continue to be rooted in what I've done, and you continue to know and love my word, then and only then do I ask you to love other people. He says this in John 15, 9, as the fathers love me, I love you, remain in my love. If you have obeyed my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed the Father's commands and I remain in his love. I have told you this, everyone ready, that, that my joy would actually be in you and that your joy may be complete. That is a promise that Jesus' joy, God's own joy, could be in your life. And then he says in verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no person than this than they lay their life down for a friend. You're my friends if you do what I command. I don't call you servants anymore. Servants don't know their master's business. Instead, I have called you friend. For everything I've learned from my father, I now make known to you. You didn't choose me. No, no, no. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that's going to last. Then the father will give whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Everyone ready? Love each other. Now, here's an important word. You see the word command? Is that an optional word? No, no. Loud. Yes or no? Think about this. Jesus is declaring to every person that would claim the title Christian that his command, the way that you evidence that you are a disciple, the way that you actually say, I love you, is that you would love other people. Now hear what he said before he gets there. You're my friend. I've chosen you. I've appointed you. I give you joy. God starts it all. You can't earn God's love. It's, it's given. He even references his coming death and resurrection, laying down his life. And, and I love the truth of this. See, if you've met Jesus, when the love of God comes into your life, you can't remove it. Your family can't remove it. Sin can't remove it. The devil can't touch it. That's why in Romans it says, for I'm convinced, I know that I know that I know that death, life, angels, demons, present, future, any power, height or depth, anything in all of creation will not, will not, will not be able to separate us from what? The love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've already got the identity and the work so we can move to others. I love that he calls us friends. Have you thought about that? That Jesus 
the one, the agent of creation, the second person of the Trinity, says to people just like us, you are my friend. I hear a song somewhere, Israel Houston's breaking out somewhere. I'm a friend of God. See, friendship is so important to love. You know, in this culture, and actually for most cultures where slavery exists, slaves are considered, well, not human. It's interesting, Aristotle actually wrote once that he considered slaves no more important or no less but more valuable than furniture or agricultural equipment. Can you think about that? That in the time just before Jesus and in the time of Jesus, people considered other human beings worth the same as the chair you're going to sit on at Swiss Chalet today. And Jesus comes and says, you're not my slave, not like that. You're my friend. And, and, and then he references telling the most intimate things. And it's true, even with employees and employers in our culture. Uh, employers don't tell their employees always their deepest thoughts. And Jesus comes and says, no, no, you're not just my employer slave. No, you're my friend. And I have revealed and am revealing the deepest things of God to you. You need to know before I ask you to love someone else that you're my friend. Jesus says, when all that's true, you need to love each other. The lordship of Jesus is always about love. Can I say that again? The lordship of Jesus is always about love. Loving God and loving others. It's based on holy love. Like I said, this is where the rubber meets the road. Now we as Christians, if you are one this morning, says, well, that sounds right. We know it's hard and we know that's our vision and mission statement, but, but, but then we go amen and then we leave and then we keep doing the same thing. Isn't, don't they say that insanity in the purest form is doing the same thing expecting a different result? And so we go, yeah, yeah, we're supposed to be loving and yeah, that's the Christian mandate. But here's the question we need to wrestle with this morning. If Jesus has come to his church and said that this is my command, love others like I have loved you, then what is love? Because if we don't have a crystal clear definition of love, we're going to invent someone else, another view of love. We're going to give someone a Kleenex box and think it's okay and it's not. So the question is, does the Bible define love? And the answer is, oh, yes, it does. And pastors only preach on this passage at weddings, and yet it should be preached regularly in a church because Jesus says that the lordship of Christ is best expressed in relationships through love. 1 Corinthians 13. Turn there, please. Love is patient. And by the way, this love is the same love Jesus is talking about. Agape, God-given love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Anyone getting concerned yet? Anyone getting nervous? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Okay, big problem suddenly. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with truth. It protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. And this is my command. You will know that if you are my disciple, if you do that. Love is patient. Love is kind. You notice it? Think about this. Don't walk from it. It's passive and active. Patience means long-suffering. Uncomplaining. Enduring. Can I ask you, are you a complainer? Love is not present. Are you kind? 
Kind means merciful. Not giving people what they deserve. Or do you always give people what they deserve? Either vocally, literally, or in your mind at 3 a.m. Are you kind? Do you envy? Envy is a word that we don't really think about very much in our culture. It's the heartbeat of jealousy. Envy promotes strife, loves rivalry, loves infighting, looks to get the favor of others at any cost. My position, my worldview, what I want is more important, and so I will do anything subtly or directly to get it, and I will damage people if it helps. Are you love? Boast means braggart, windbag, self-centered, calling attention to yourself. Don't you know who I am? Pride means vanity. Here's a very important one. I want everyone to listen closely to this. Pride means I am better than you. Don't you know who I am? I have the right skin color. I have the right education. Don't you know I'm older and wiser? Don't you know I'm younger and cooler? You can fill in the blank. But pride declares that you are better, better, better than others. And you should know that you are. So get underneath me, you little thing. Love is not rude. Rude is about dishonor. You give shame to others. You are a person, if you are not filled with love, that you love guilt and shame and you use it as a weapon. Actually, in Greek, when I was preaching this to our 905 audience, it struck home for me. In Greek, rudeness means a defiance to moral standards. It means that you regularly embarrass and disgrace those who are over you to lead you. Family members, teachers, the police, friends, politicians, pastors, even your enemies. If you are rude, you are a person that models disrespect. There is no love if you are that. It is not self-seeking. Love is not about you. We as Christians reject the idea wholeheartedly that finding oneself is the highest form of good. We hold that finding God is the highest form of good. But self-seeking declares, if I can find myself, I will be okay. God says, if you find me, you will be okay. It is not easily angered. It's one I struggle with big time. You do not easily snap around, uh, at people around you or at yourself. Here's a huge one. It keeps no record of wrongs. I want everyone who's starting to tune out to tune in. <laughs> it keeps no record of wrongs. Are you saying, John, that, that I, I can't? No record of wrongs. When you walk down, do you know what that person did to me six years ago in your head? Do you remember what that person did 30 years ago to me? Do you know what that person said to me last week? Do you know how they treated me? Do you know what they said on Facebook? You can fill in the blank what my mother, grandmother, what they do, what I think about you. It keeps no record of wrong. See, here's the power of the gospel. Do you think that God ever forgets our sin? No, no, no. He chooses not to use it against us. He never forgets anything. But because he keeps no record of wrongs, he says, because of Christ, I will not hold others accountable, though they deserve it in the deepest sense. And yet he says, and you need to do that too. We don't get to carry a laundry list of I told you so in the church. No record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices with truth. You run to the gospel. You love truth. You love goodness and beauty in our culture. You do not accommodate. You do not love evil. You don't joke about evil things. You don't find joy. 
You're not turned on by mass violence and sexual misconduct and rebellion and hate and racism. Again, when I was preaching to the young adult audience, I said, tell me, tell me, how do you think Jesus feels when you keep destroying so many people as you're playing video games? Do you think that you're rejoicing in godliness or evil? It does not rejoice in things we've been saved from. It does not sit in delight when other Christians fall. We don't get excited about war. We don't get excited about the suppression of the poor. We don't clap our hands and our hearts quietly when a brother and sister that we think deserves to get what they got gets it. And we go, oh, I told you they deserved it. Love, absolutely, one wrote, rejects that most terrible form of rejoicing of evil called gossip. We are not gladdened when another Christian falls. Because if we are gladdened and we rejoice in evil, do we not just become like the devil himself who points his finger and accuses the brethren? What is the difference between the devil and a church that keeps records of wrong and gladdens in their heart when someone falls? There is very little difference. Love protects. It trusts. It hopes. It perseveres. It cannot be stopped because the love we are talking about is not from this place and it is God-given. It is God-given, it is embraced, and once it grows in you, you can give it to others. And Jesus comes to us as believers not to destroy us, not to beat us down, not to feel, make us feel guilty. And he says to us these strong words, he says, Oh, church, don't you understand? As I have loved you, As the Father has perfectly loved me, I love you. Now go and love one another. If you've never embraced Jesus, you're online, you're hanging out, and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here, by the way. Keep coming and asking questions. If you've you've never followed Jesus, hear this today. Ponder this, consider this. Jesus is love. Why would you not choose to give up your sin, your pride, your future, your family, your money, your ego, your dreams to someone like this? You will never find someone like this ever again. You will never become this fully. But Jesus, because he's God, is this. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus is patience. He will forgive you and forgive you and forgive you. Jesus is ultimate kindness. He is mercy. By the way, he is not weak. Oh, don't make that mistake. My boss is not weak. He is power under control. Jesus doesn't have an envy problem. Isn't that reassuring? Jesus doesn't need to be proudful or boastful. He's good with who he is. Trust me. (laughs) Jesus isn't rude. Jesus will never, ever humiliate anyone. Jesus is not self-seeking. Actually, he's the reverse of that. Jesus does not keep a record of wrongs. Does someone need to hear that this morning? He really doesn't keep a record of wrongs. He remembers, but he says, no, I will not. Jesus is not easily angered. So many of you think he's easily angered. He's not. Jesus hates evil. He loves good. Jesus protects. He's full of hope. He's fully trustworthy, and he never gives up on people. If you are a person who has never embraced Jesus because you've struggled with his teachings or you don't want to give up your life or you love your sin too much or you struggle with the church and what it's done, I want to say to you, your contact first and foremost is not with us, it's with the one we all know. Would you give your life to love incarnate today?
Pray this prayer with me. Christians, pray desperately at this moment. If that is you here online, declare these words, Jesus, I have lived without you. I mean, I really have. And I've resisted you because of pride or because of my history or I thought maybe you didn't want me. I didn't know about you. And I want to meet you. I, forgive me for my sin. If you are really love, if you're this, then I want you not only to save me from my sin, I want eternal life. I, you are the vine. I want to be one of your branches. But I also want you to make me like this, to change me, to begin a new work in me. I confess my garbage in front of you. Forgive me. I trust in your death, resurrection, in your word. Come and be, Lord, be planted in me. Show me love I did not think existed on this earth. I pray this for the first time in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that, make sure if you came with someone to tell them or find some of us at the front or online, you can email us. Christians, Jesus teaches us about love. I want to remind all of us, and I, I, I know some of you again are struggling, but please, love is our greatest weapon, everyone, in spiritual warfare. You can cast out demons and see things really cool, but if you really want to see principalities and powers fall, love your neighbor. Love is the greatest tool for evangelism. You want to see people say, so you're the real deal? Love people. Love is the only way that church works. I want to say this very clearly. Love is the only way your connect group is going to work. Love is the only thing that's going to allow four generations of different people to get along in one building, for different ethnicities, different genders, and different backgrounds. The only way C4 is ever going to work if we all commit to love like Jesus has loved us. If we stop getting near the vine, we're going to turn on each other. And when we turn on each other, the church becomes fragmented and the non-believers go, why do I want another family like that? I've already got one myself. We must be desperate for this. The real sign of a real move of God, let me say this carefully, is always found when relationships are being changed by love. See, love is the very foundation. It's the thing that's going to hold a coming move of God, an existing move of God. It's great that people are having visions of Christ and meeting him and people are repenting of sin and being empowered in their gifts. But if there is not love in this church, all of that does not have value. Revival is about loving God and then loving the church and then loving the world. And Jesus comes and says, if you love me, you will love others. And then, like he says there and then back last week, he reminds us that we don't do this on our own. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we cannot do this on our own. This is not just us, I'm going to love you more. No, it is, oh Jesus, I do not love these people. Come help me now and make me something I will never naturally be. So here's the question. Jesus says... That if you are a Christian, this is his command. This is the ultimate outworking of the Lordship of Christ. We as a church are praying for personal renewal, a corporate revival across all of our people, and then an awakening where thousands would come to know Jesus. 
Well, we've seen so many powerful things, so many testimonies, so many genuine experiences, and yet here's the ultimate conversation we as a family need to start having right now with Jesus. Are we willing to let Jesus so change us that we love each other and the world that will hate us? That is the ultimate cry. This song that Steph led today, that all things need to come down under, on Jesus, who's, who's the victor. That happens when we choose and ask by the power of God to make us loving towards one another. Let's be honest. I don't want to love some of you. No offense. And you don't want to love me. Oh, please, don't act so pious. It's true. There are, we, we naturally are not loving, and we tend to like people that are like ourselves, and anyone else who is not, we're not interested in. But Jesus has started a revolution where he says to the elders of our church, to the pastors of our church, to the ministry team leaders of our church, to all of us as a family, he says this, if you love me, you will love each other. If you love me, you will love a world that hates me. And then he says, and love is this. So here's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And I ask the Holy Spirit to do his thing. And so we do this every once in a while. Uh, get in a posture of receiving. And, and, and I mean this. So kneel, stand. The Bible, sometimes you cover your face in respect. You can, you can do every, you, you can do whatever, you, you can just sit there quietly. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. And as the band is coming up, I want you guys to pray this too, okay? Before we get going. So we're going to pray through the list of love. And here's what I'd like us to do. I'm going to ask God to say, if you're doing well in an area, so you can feel encouraged. And I'm going to pray also that he convicts you and us if we're not. And then we're going to take a moment to pray that he would change us. So let's pray this. Jesus, for us who follow you, we start this conversation simply this way. You have loved us. <laughs> You've loved us like your dad has loved you. And so here's our request. At this moment, in this time, here and online. You've commanded us to love one another. We have been praying in this church, Jesus, very directly for revival. And the truth is, revival will only happen if we love each other. And that's only going to happen if you help us. So you say that love is patience. Holy Spirit, I now invite you in the name of Jesus, Spirit of Christ, to come across every person in the sound of my voice and begin to tell the truth about us. Lord, are we patient as a church? Are we patient as individuals? You say that you are kind and love is kind. Lord, convict us if we are not merciful. Change us, O oh Lord. You say, O oh Lord, that envy and pride and boastfulness have nothing to do with you. Lord, forgive us. Like really, Holy Spirit, change us. Lord, you say that love is not self-seeking. This is a motive issue that only you know about. So I'm asking, Holy Spirit, right now, sweep across this whole church and tell people if they are 
doing well in this or if we actually are doing so much to promote ourselves. Lord, you say love is not easily angered. This is one I publicly confess before the whole church. So bad at. This next one is um, deeply concerning. Holy Spirit, I ask you now to tell us if we're keeping lists, records of wrongs. Right now, I'd ask that literally you'd bring up names and images and situations. I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us the ability to forgive not forget, but forgive. And that these images and situations would start being broken now in Jesus' name and that there would be love in place of bitterness and gossip and anger. Help those who are beginning the journey that it's going to be okay. Lord, you say that love does not delight in evil. Holy Spirit, I'd ask the same thing. Would you sweep across this church and show us where we delight in evil? Lord, begin to break that so we are loved. Lord, we pray that we'd rejoice in truth in this church. Help this church to protect, to trust, to hope, to persevere. Begin a love awakening in us that will produce hope. I pray for every child, every teenager, every young adult, every adult in our church that you would personally, Jesus, deal with our love issues and our deficiencies. Don't let us stay the same. You've commanded us to love. We are so desperately far from you on this. Just end by saying we, we want to abide in you, but we need your help to change us. Jesus, have mercy in our church. Jesus, transform our relationships. Jesus, do not relent and do not let us be the same. In the name of the Father, who is our gardener, who has called us. The name of the Son, who is the vine that we find life in. In the name of the Holy Spirit, that will make us love through his work. Amen.